It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 13 and 14, from A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. And now, chapter 13, Freeman. Yes, it is strange how a little while at a time a person can be contented. Only a little while back, when I was riding and suffering, what a heaven, this peace, this rest, this sweet serenity in the secluded shady nook by this purling stream would have seemed, where I could keep perfectly comfortable all the time by pouring a dip of water into my armor now and then. Yet already I was getting dissatisfied, partly because I could not light my pipe, for, although I had long ago started a match factory, I had forgotten to bring matches with me, and partly because we had nothing to eat. Here was yet another illustration of the childlike improvidence of this age and people. A man in armor always trusted to chance for his food on a journey, and would have been scandalized at the idea of hanging a basket of sandwiches on a spear. There was probably not a knight of all the round-table combination who would not rather have died than been caught carrying such a thing as that on his flagstaff. And yet there could not be anything more sensible. It had been my intention to smuggle a couple of sandwiches into my helmet, but I was interrupted in the act and had to make an excuse and lay them aside, and a dog got them. Night approached, and with it came a storm. A darkness came on fast. We must camp, of course. I found a good shelter for the demoiselle under a rock, and went off and found another for myself. But I was obliged to remain in my armor, because I could not get it off by myself, and yet could not allow Alassane to help, because it would have seemed so like undressing before folk. It would not have amounted to that in reality, because I had clothes on underneath. But the prejudices of one's breeding are not gotten rid of at just a jump and I knew that when it came to stripping off that bobtailed iron petticoat, I should be embarrassed. With the storm came a change of weather, and the stronger the wind blew, and the wilder the rain lashed around, the colder and colder it got. Pretty soon, various kinds of bugs and ants and worms and things began to flock in out of the wet and crawl down beside my armor to get warm, and while some of them behaved well enough and snuggled up amongst my clothes and got quiet, the majority were of a restless, uncomfortable sort, and never stayed still, but went on prowling and hunting, for they did not know what, especially the ants, which were tickling along in wearisome procession from one end of me to the other, by the hour, 
and are a kind of creatures which I never wish to sleep with again. It would be my advice to persons situated in this way, to not roll or thrash around, because this excites the interest of all the different sorts of animals, and makes every last one of them want to turn out and see what's going on. And this makes things worse than they were before, and of course makes you objurgate harder, too, if you can. Still, if one did not roll and thrash around, he would die, so perhaps it is well to do one way as the other. There is no real choice. Even after I was frozen solid, I could still distinguish that tickling, just as a corpse does when it's taking electric treatment. I said I would never wear armor after this trip. All those trying hours whilst I was frozen, and yet was in a living fire, as you may say, on account of that swarm of crawlers, that same unanswerable question kept circling and circling through my tired head. How do people stand this miserable armor? How have they managed to stand it all these generations? How can they sleep at night for dreading the tortures of the next day? When the morning came at last, I was in a bad enough plight, seedy, drowsy, fagged, from want of sleep, weary from thrashing around, famished from long fasting, pining for a bath, and to get rid of the animals, and crippled with rheumatism. And how had it fared with the nobly born, the titled aristocrat, the demoiselle Alessande Le Cartelloy? Well, she was as fresh as a squirrel. She had slept like the dead, and as for a bath, probably neither she nor any other noble in the land had ever had one, and so she was not missing it. Measured by modern standards, they were merely modified savages, those people. This noble lady showed no impatience to get to breakfast, and that smacks of the savage, too. On their journeys, those Britons were used to long fast, and knew how to bear them, and also how to freight up against probable fast before starting, after the style of the Indian and the Anaconda. As like as not, Sandy was loaded for a three-day stretch. We were off before sunrise. "'Sandy riding and I limping along behind. "'In half an hour we came upon a group of ragged poor creatures "'who had assembled to mend the thing which was regarded as a road. "'They were as humble as animals to me, "'and when I proposed to breakfast with them, "'they were so flattered, so overwhelmed by this extraordinary condescension of mine, "'that at first they were not able to believe that I was in earnest. "'My lady put up her scornful lip and withdrew to one side. "'She said within their hearing that she would as soon think of eating with the other cattle.' a remark which embarrassed these poor devils merely because it referred to them, and not because it insulted or offended them, for it didn't. And yet they were not slaves, not chattels. By a sarcasm of law and phrase, they were, they were freemen. Seven-tenths of the free population of the country were of just their class and degree. Small, independent farmers, artisans, etc., which is to say, they were the nation, the actual nation. They were about all of it that was useful, or worth saving, or really respect-worthy, and to subtract them would have been to subtract the nation, and leave behind some dregs, some refuse, in the shape of a king, nobility, and gentry, idle, unproductive, acquainted mainly with the arts of wasting and destroying, and of no sort of use or value in any rationally constructed world. And yet, by ingenious contrivance, this gilded minority, instead of being in the tail of the procession where it belonged, was marching head up and banners flying at the other end of it, had elected itself to be the nation, and these innumerable claims had permitted it so long that they had come at last to accept it as a truth, and not only that, but to believe it right, and as it should be. The priests had told their fathers and themselves that this ironical state of things was ordained of God, and so, not reflecting upon how unlike God it would be to amuse himself with sarcasms, 
and especially such poor transparent ones as this, they had dropped the matter there and become respectfully quiet. The talk of these meek people had a strange enough sound in a formerly American ear. They were freemen, but they could not leave the estates of their lord or their bishop without his permission. They couldn't prepare their own bread, but must have their corn ground and their bread baked at his mill and his bakery, and pay roundly for the same. They could not sell a piece of their own property without paying him a handsome percentage of the proceeds, nor buy a piece of somebody else's without remembering him in cash for the privilege. They had to harvest his grain for him gratis, and be ready to come at a moment's notice, leaving their own crop to destruction by the threatened storm. They had to let him plant fruit trees in their fields, and then keep their indignation to themselves when his heedless fruit-gatherers trampled the grain around the trees. They had to smother their anger when his hunting parties galloped through their fields laying waste the result of their patient toil. They were not allowed to keep doves themselves, and when the swarms from my lord's dove-coat settled on their crops, they must not lose their temper and kill a bird, for awful would the penalty be. When the harvest was at last gathered, then came the procession of robbers to levy their blackmail upon it. First the church carted off its fat tenth, then the king's commissioner took his twentieth, then my lord's people made a mighty inroad upon the remainder, after which the skinned freeman had liberty to bestow the remnant in his barn, in case it was worth the trouble. There were taxes, and taxes, and taxes, and more taxes, and taxes again, and yet other taxes, upon this free and independent pauper, but none upon his lord the baron or the bishop, none upon the wasteful nobility or the old or the all-devouring church. If the baron would sleep unvexed, the freeman, the freeman must sit up all night after his day's work and whip the ponds to keep the frogs quiet. If the freeman's daughter... But no, that last infamy of monarchical government is unprintable. And finally, if the freeman, grown desperate with his tortures, found his life unendurable under such conditions, and sacrificed it and fled to death for mercy and refuge, the gentle church condemned him to eternal fire, the gentle law buried him at midnight at the crossroads with a stake through his back, and his master, the baron, or the bishop, confiscated all his property and turned his widow and his orphans out of doors. And here were these freemen assembled in the early morning to work on their lord the bishop's road three days each, gratis, every head of a family and every son of a family, three days each, gratis, and a day or so added for their servants. Why, it was like reading about France and the French before the ever-memorable and blessed revolution, which swept a thousand years of such villainy away in one swift tidal wave of blood. One, a settlement of that hoary debt in the proportion of half a drop of blood for each hogshead of it that had been pressed by slow tortures out of that people in the weary stretch of ten centuries of wrong and shame and misery, the like of which was not to be mated but in hell. There were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons, the other upon a hundred millions. But our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak, whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe, compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? What is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror 
which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity, as it deserves. These poor, ostensible freemen who were sharing their breakfast and their talk with me were as full of humble reverence for their king and church and nobility as their worst enemy could desire. There was something pitifully ludicrous about it. I asked them if they supposed a nation of people ever existed, who, with a free vote in every man's hand, would elect that a single family and its descendants should reign over it forever, whether gifted or boobies, to the exclusion of all other families, including the voters, and would also elect that a certain hundred families should be raised to dizzy summits of rank, and clothed on with offensive transmissible glories and privileges to the exclusion of the rest of the nation's families, including his own. They all looked unhit, and said they didn't know, that they'd never thought about it before, and it hadn't ever occurred to them that a nation could be so situated that every man could have a say in the government. I said I'd seen one, and that it would last until it had an established church. Again, they were all unhit at first. But presently one man looked up and asked me to state that proposition again, and state it slowly, so it could soak into his understanding. I did it, and after a little he had the idea, and he brought his fist down and said he didn't believe a nation where every man had a vote would voluntarily get down in the mud and dirt in any such way, and that to steal from a nation its will and preference must be a crime, and the first of all crimes. I said to myself, This one's a man. If I were backed up by enough of his sort, I would make a strike for the welfare of this country and try to prove myself its loyalist citizen by making a wholesome change in its system of government. You see, my kind of loyalty was loyalty to one's country, not to its institutions or its office holders. The country is the real thing, the substantial thing, the eternal thing. It is the thing to watch over and care for and be loyal to. Institutions are extraneous. They are its mere clothing, and clothing can wear out, become ragged, Cease to be comfortable. Cease to protect the body from winter, disease, and death. To be loyal to rags, to shout for rags, to worship rags, to die for rags, that is a loyalty of unreason. It is pure animal. It belongs to monarchy. It was invented by monarchy. Let monarchy keep it. I was from Connecticut, whose constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people, that all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, and that they have at all times an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient. Under that gospel, the citizen who thinks he sees that the commonwealth's political clothes are worn out, and yet holds his peace and does not agitate for a new suit, is disloyal. He is a traitor. That he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him. It is his duty to agitate anyway, and it is the duty of the others to vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does. And now here I was, in a country where a right to say how the country should be governed was restricted to six persons in each thousand of its population. For the 994 to express dissatisfaction with the regnant system and propose to change it, it would have made the whole six shudder as one man. It would have been so disloyal, so dishonorable, such putrid black treason. So to speak, I was become a stockholder in a corporation where 994 of the members furnished all the money and did all the work, and the other six elected themselves a permanent board of direction and took all the dividends. It seemed to me what the 994 dupes needed was a new deal. The thing that would have best suited the circus side of my nature would have been to resign the bossship 
"'and get up an insurrection and turn it into a revolution. "'But I knew that the Jack Cade or the Watt Tyler "'who tries such a thing without first educating his materials "'up to revolution grade "'is almost absolutely certain to get left. "'I'd never been accustomed to getting left, "'even if I do say it myself. "'Wherefore, the deal, "'which had been for some time working into shape in my mind, "'was of quite a different pattern from the Cade Tyler sort.' So I did not talk blood and insurrection to that man there who sat munching black bread with that abused and mistaught herd of human sheep, but took him aside and talked matter of another sort to him. After I had finished, I got him to lend me a little ink from his veins, and with this and a sliver I wrote on a piece of bark, put him in the man factory, and gave it to him and said, Take it to the palace at Camelot and give it into the hands of Amyas Le Poulet, whom I call Clarence, and he will understand." "'He is a priest, then,' said the man, "'and some of the enthusiasm went out of his face. "'How is he a priest? "'Didn't I tell you that no chattel of the church, "'no bond-slave of the pope or bishop, "'can enter my man-factory? "'Didn't I tell you that you couldn't enter "'unless your religion, whatever it might be, "'was your own free property? "'Mary, it is so, and for that I was glad. "'Wherefore it liked me not, and bred in me a cold doubt.' "'to hear of this priest being there. "'But he isn't a priest, I tell you.' "'The man looked far from satisfied. "'He said, "'He is not a priest, and yet can read?' "'He is not a priest, and yet can read. "'Yes, and write, too, for that matter. "'I taught him myself.' "'The man's face cleared. "'And it is the first thing that you yourself "'will be taught in that factory.' "'I? "'I would give the blood out of my heart "'to know that art.' "'Why, I will be your slave, your—' "'No, you won't. "'You won't be anybody's slave. "'Take your family and go along. "'Your lord, the bishop, will confiscate your small property, "'but no matter. "'Clarence will fix you up all right.' "'We'll return with Chapter 14 "'from a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court "'right after these sponsor messages. "'These days, work is in trouble. "'We've outsourced most of our manufacturing "'to other countries.' And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now chapter 14. Defend thee, Lord. I paid three pennies for my breakfast, and a most extravagant price it was, too, seeing that one could have breakfasted a dozen persons for that money. But I was feeling good by this time and I had always been a kind of spendthrift anyway. And then these people had wanted to give me the food for nothing, scant as their provision was, 
and so it was a grateful pleasure to emphasize my appreciation and sincere thankfulness with a good big financial lift where the money would do so much more good than it would in my helmet, where, these pennies being made of iron and not stinted in weight, my half-dollar's worth was a good deal of a burden to me. I spent money rather too freely in those days, it is true, but one reason for it was that I hadn't got the proportions of things entirely adjusted. Even yet, after so long a sojourn in Britain, hadn't got along to where I was able to absolutely realize that a penny in Arthur's land and a couple of dollars in Connecticut were about one and the same thing, just twins, as you may say, in purchasing power. If my start from Camelot could have been delayed a very few days, I could have paid these people in beautiful new coins from our own mint, and that would have pleased me, and them too, not less. I had adopted the American values exclusively. In a week or two now, cents, nickels, dimes, quarters, and half dollars, also a trifle of gold, would be trickling in thin but steady streams all through the commercial veins of the kingdom, and I looked to see this new blood freshen up its life. The farmers were bound to throw in something to sort of offset my liberality, whether I would or no, so I let them give me a flint and steel, and as soon as they had comfortably bestowed Sandy and me on our horse, I lit my pipe. When the first blast of smoke shot out through the bars of my helmet, all those people broke for the woods, and Sandy went over backwards and struck the ground with a dull thud. They thought it was one of those fire-belching dragons they'd heard so much about from knights and other professional liars. I had infinite trouble to persuade those people to venture back without explaining distance. Then I told them that this was only a bit of enchantment which would work harm to none but my enemies. And I promised, with my hand on my heart, that if all who felt no enmity toward me would come forward and pass before me, they should see that only those who remained behind would be struck dead. Their procession moved with a good deal of promptness. There were no casualties to report, for nobody had curiosity enough to remain behind to see what would happen. I lost some time now, for these big children, their fears gone, became so ravished with wonder over my awe-compelling fireworks that I had to stay there and smoke a couple of pipes out before they would let me go. Still, the delay was not wholly unproductive, for it took all that time to get Sandy thoroughly wanted to the new thing, she being so close to it, you know. It plugged up her conversation mill, too, for a considerable while, and that was a gain. But above all other benefits accruing, I had learned something. I was ready for any giant or any ogre that might come along now. We tarried with a holy hermit that night, and my opportunity came about the middle of the next afternoon. We were crossing a vast meadow by way of a shortcut, and I was musing absently, hearing nothing, seeing nothing, when Sandy suddenly interrupted a remark which she had begun that morning with the cry, "'Defend thee, Lord! Peril of life is toward!' And she slipped down from the horse and ran a little way and stood. I looked up and saw, far off in the shade of a tree, half a dozen armed knights and their squires, and straightway there was a bustle among them and, and tightening of saddle girths for the mount. My pipe was ready and would have been lit if I had not been lost in thinking about how to banish oppression from this land and restore to all its people their stolen rights and manhood without disobliging anybody. I lit up at once, and by the time I'd got a good head of reserve steam on, here they came. Altogether, too, none of those chivalrous magnanimities which one reads so much about one courtly rascal at a time, and the rest standing by to see fair play. Oh, no. These came in a body. They came with a whir and a rush. They came like a volley from a battery. Came with heads low down, plumes streaming out behind, lances advanced at a level. It was a handsome sight, a beautiful sight. For a man in a tree. 
I laid my lance in rest and waited, with my heart beating, till the iron wave was just ready to break over me, then spouted a column of white smoke through the bars of my helmet. You should have seen the wave go to pieces and scatter. This was a finer sight than the other one. But these people stopped two or three hundred yards away, and this troubled me. My satisfaction collapsed, and fear came. I judged I was a lost man. But Sandy was radiant, and was going to be eloquent. But I stopped her, and told her my magic had miscarried, somehow or other, and she must mount, with all dispatch, and we must ride for our lives. Nope, she said she wouldn't. She said that my enchantment had disabled those knights. They were not riding on, because they couldn't. Wait, they would drop out of their saddles presently, and we would get their horses and harness. I could not deceive such trusting simplicity, so I said it was a mistake, that when my fireworks killed at all, they killed instantly. No, the men would not die. There was something wrong about my apparatus. I couldn't tell what, but we must hurry and get away, for those people would attack us again, and in a minute. But Sandy laughed and said, Lack a day, sir! They be not of that breed. Sir Lancelot will give battle to dragons, and will abide by them, and will assail them again, and yet again, and again, until he do conquer and destroy them. And so likewise will Sir Pellinore, and Sir Aglovale, and Sir Carados, mayhap others, but there be none else that will venture it. Let the idle say what the idle will. And la, as to yonder base ruffians, think ye they have not their fill, but yet desire more? Well, then, Sandy, what are they waiting for? Why don't they leave? Nobody's hindering. Good land! I'm willing to let bygones be bygones, I'm sure. Leave, is it? Oh, give thyself easement as to that. They dream not of it. No, not they. They wait to yield them. Come, really, is that sooth, as you people say? If they want to, why don't they? It would like them much, but an you wot how dragons are esteemed, you would not hold them blamable. They fear to come. Well, then, I suppose I'll go to them instead. Ah, wit ye well they would not abide your coming. I will go. And she did. She was a handy person to have along on a raid. I would have considered this a doubtful errand to myself. I presently saw the knights riding away, and Sandy coming back. That was a relief. I judged that she had somehow failed to get the first innings. I mean, in the conversation. Otherwise, the interview wouldn't have been so short. But it turned out that she had managed the business well. In fact, admirably. She said that when she told those people I was the boss, it hit them where they lived. Smote them sore with fear and dread, was her word. And then they were ready to put up with anything she might require. So she swore them to appear at Arthur's court within two days and yield them with horse and harness and be my knights henceforth and subject to my command. How much better she managed that thing than I should have done it myself. She was a daisy. We'll return next week Sunday with two more chapters from a Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court. Way to go, Sandy. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories from the Road. We love reviews, especially you Apple listeners. So if you have a few minutes and you're enjoying our show, please do take a moment. Send us a review. We appreciate that very, very much. We do have a few recent reviews we'd like to share with you. First one, fantastic, five stars. John Hagedorn's material never fails to please. This podcast, as well as his many other shows, has given me many hours of entertainment. John's voice is perfect. It's like he's sitting at my kitchen table. Very engaging. That one from Amos412, Apple Podcast, U.S. 
and this one, great podcast, five stars. John does a great job reading those adventure stories, as well as picking the stories, I'd say. This has become my favorite thing to listen to while walking, driving, and just relaxing. Keep up the great work, John. The one from Andy Realty, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Andy, I've been thinking a lot about what the next one's going to be. And I think we're going to do the Jewels of Opar, another Tarzan adventure. So there's a hint for you. Our Tarzan stories have done very well in the past. It's just great adventure fantasy writing. And this one, a gift I continue to enjoy. Five stars. I've been a listener for years to many of the stories posted in Mr. Hagedorn's 1001 Stories Podcast Network, and I enjoy them all. I've been educated, entertained, and challenged. I now am familiar with stories I'd only heard of, and I'm more appreciative of why these stories are classics and their authors are acclaimed. I look forward to taking the long way home and hope for red lights so I can hear the whole story. Two thumbs up. I'll be a listener for years to come. That one from Favorite Child, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, Favorite Child, Irish Gal, and Andy Realty and Amos412. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and write us these reviews. They are greatly appreciated. So thanks a lot. And there are many to come, I promise you. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe and happy. And we'll be back soon. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.